The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. So then as part of this meditation, I'll offer you some images that in your mind's eye you can imagine or visualize or think about. And they are images that are meant to evoke India the way it was for thousands of years, maybe. The plains of India, the great flat expanse of northwest India, where there are great rivers that flow, flow through the plains, that join together. And so maybe you can have the images of rivers, maybe a great river. river that flows through a vast expanse of flat land with trees and forests. River and plains and forests. Before there were cars and roads and telephone poles. At a time when people walked for those thousands of years when people walked across India. Many people walked barefoot, sandals. And and there are scenes, events from, that must have been repeated millions of times, ordinary events. Situations which, as as a human being in Northern India, the Buddha himself must have experienced maybe many, many times. And in this image of a river and the edge of a expanse of woods and the plains, there's a trail or a dirt road which many travelers have traveled. And here's an old man walking along. And the old man comes to the edge of the river, no bridge, a vast, flat river. You can see the other side. An ordinary situation of an old man, maybe weary from walking, standing at the edge of a river, contemplating how to cross, seeing people nearby who are Maybe building a raft or have a small boat that they ferry people across. 
and this old man <coughs> did something which people have done for thousands of years, millions and millions of times, ordinary thing, having gone for a walk and being tired and sweaty and, and thirsty, took a bath in the river to cool off, to become clean, drank the water to be refreshed. And perhaps being an old man, he folded his robes, his clothes and nice square, nice pillow, and lay down to rest in the shade of a tree. And then and later in the day, an event, another event occurred that must have happened many times in India, many times for the Buddha, an event which is described in the, this discourse we have. As a religious person, a mendicant, this old man receives an invitation to come to someone's house for a meal. And he comes to the house and he's offered a seat, an honored place to sit. And the hosts bring out a variety of dishes, of different kinds of food for this mendicant to choose from. And the mendicant eats the food until the mendicant is satisfied. And when, as is the custom, when the, they would eat, and back in India, that back, back then they'd eat with their hands, not with utensils, eat out of a bowl. And when the hand comes out of the bowl for the final time and rests on the side, that's an indication that the mendicant has finished eating. And so the, peop the, the hosts then sit down, they finished what they had to do in offering food, and they sit down to one side. And then the mendicant says, thank you. Offers thanks. And then gets up, leaves the house, and continues his walk along the dirt roads in the plains of India.
What's an old man doing, 80 years old? Walking for days. What's an 80 year old man doing on a journey of some 200 miles on foot, crossing rivers, resting, eating at people's homes, traveling north. What is it an 80-year-old man has to do that requires such an arduous journey? So good morning and uh, welcome to our Sati Center Sutta Study Day. And um, so this day we're going to spend about six hours now exploring the Parinibbana Sutta, the discourse on the Buddha's final passing away, which records or provides a story about um, the last months of the Buddha's life and, and uh, what happened to him as he passed away and what happened right after he passed away. So the existence of the Buddha is very important for Buddhists and his passing away is then somewhat meaningful for many Buddhists. And so it's interesting to know what happened, what was that about? And there's this amazing discourse called the Parinibbana Sutta. It's amazing because for many reasons one is that uh, not only is it the longest discourse in the whole Pali Canon, I think in this uh, Walshi translation it's something like 50 pages long. It could be a book and it's booked by itself. So it's a really long discourse. It's one of the few discourses that has a lot of biographical material. It kind of describes a lot about the story of the Buddha and um, in one place. And it's also... Seemingly, I, I read, I don't, I don't know myself, but I've read, that is also the uh, longest piece of literature coming out of uh, ancient India, before the common era, time of India. Things like the, um, some of the other Indic literature, like the Upanishads or the Ramanical texts, the Ramanayana and variety, things are quite big, but they're actually made up of a lot of smaller subtexts. Um, that are kind of combined together, like their collection. And so this is, um, as, w- as one text, this is a, one of the longest pieces of Indian literature from the ancient times. And it, um, how, how to study it is a big issue, how to relate to it. 
And certainly some people will try to relate to it uh, or eager to relate to it as if this is a historical account of what happened in the Buddha's last days. And that they're looking for, who was this guy? What happened? You know, the latest gossip or what happened? Can I, so I can relate to this person, understand, or I'm coping with my own death and dying. And so what is this going to teach me about me? You know, how, the, how you know, what model does this great, great religious leader have that is meaningful? It's kind of like some people, it's a test. They're going to test their Buddhism because, you know, how the, how the founder of the religion died is, says something about what this religion has to promise. You know, I mean, what if the Buddha in his, in his deathbed said, well, you know, gee, you know, this is hard. I guess I wasn't up, up to it. <laughs> you know, I guess all those years of practice and this is just a drag. I, you know, it's probably, probably I didn't quite get it right. I mean, that would be kind of disappointing, right? I mean, probably the Buddhism wouldn't have survived if he had ended his life that way. So we kind of people look. Another way of looking at this discourse is that it's not to read it as an historical document, but to swing all the way in the other direction and read it as a piece of fiction, the way you would read maybe a play of Shakespeare. And most people don't think that the plays of Shakespeare are real, like you know, accounting for real events. Uh, uh, but they, um, it, it, people find tremendous value in reading a play of Shakespeare. And there's so much uh, of our humanity, that deep humanity that's expressed in kind of powerful ways in Hamlet and Macbeth and, and, uh, and people get, go into those plays and see themselves and see the kind of deeper kind of connection to life or questioning of life or understanding of the context of life and, and the issues of life in a way that is meaningful for many, many people. And so it's possible to read this text as that kind of literature, maybe like a play, or, and it might actually be more, more meaningful um, in the way that sometimes myths are more meaningful than just a dry kind of historical account of something. And so, um, and then it's interesting that if you could look at the ancient world, ancient India, ancient Buddhism, they, did, they, were, they seemingly weren't able to or didn't, weren't inclined to make that sharp separation as many of us here in the West can make, between what's historically true and what's myth, what's historically true and what's kind of fiction or literature or, you know, kind of made up. Um, and so there's kind of a, you know, kind of a, at least that's what it looks like from our vantage point. And so there's kind of a, kind of a nebulous dream, maybe dreamlike quality between these two realms of the historical and the mythic, the historical and the story-making the historical and the way in which this, with the, the story of the historical, the way it's recounted, is embellished or enriched or highlighted or emphasized or even made up as a way to make some points, to teach something powerful, to have an effect. Um, uh, and so this sutta has, has, you know, you know, is, you know, how do you, how do we address it? How do we look at it? is an important topic before we go into it, delve into it. Um, it's, as I said, it's the longest thing that's been written, uh, or a piece of literature, but it seems pretty clear that it's made up of a lot of um, uh, segments that are brought in from other places, like it's been added, in, interpolations and added, and things have been added and added over the centuries. 
um, the, we have some evidence or suggestion that some of the things, some of the poems were added uh, quite late, maybe 500 years after the time of the Buddha. And, and what suggests that is that the Theravadan tradition and the commentaries in Sri Lanka make that claim. You know, so here the very the Theravadan elders of our tradition, you know, the people who kind of were creating the tradition itself, they themselves uh, say, oh, these poems, they weren't from the time of the Buddha, these were added later. And, um, and, uh, and some of the things that they're discussed clearly seem to um, refer to things which became important later. And so the assumption by scholars is that, oh yeah, these were interpolations, things added in. And how much things were added in and why were different things added in? Things were added in because of the reasons that were very important for the authors or for the editors. And what were those reasons? And what was being taught? What was being expressed? And there was many, many things. So when I look at this text, I see it as a fascinating hodgepodge, uh, potpourri of Buddhist religion, of so many editors and people that combined to make it that you find a whole different range of what Buddhism has meant to many different people. And you don't find like one Buddhism in this text. And, uh, but you find many, many things. And some of the things you find, it may be not your kind of Buddhism. And some of the things you find might be your kind of Buddhism. But it's nice to know there's this hodgepodge, there's different kind of approaches and, and takes of what people have. There is, um, uh, the Buddha is presented in the most, um, uh, seemingly in ordi- very, pretty ordinary human ways. And you can see an ordinary human being there. Maybe in the way like I did for the visualization I asked you to do which was drawing from little, little events that are described in this text. And then uh, uh, the Buddha appears as a, as a, basically as a divine being, as a supernatural kind of godlike being who has amazing powers and abilities that you can't relate to as being human in any kind of way. So we have the kind of, the, uh, kind of you know, the kind of very human-centered kind of Buddhism, which many people relate to. And then we have kind of this almost theistic-centered Buddhism, which represents the Buddhism that um, grew up and developed in much of Asia uh, in these centuries after the Buddha. You have uh, an emphasis on real, simple, direct practice, like practice the four foundations of mindfulness. That's the essence of what you should do. And then you have this rampant, you know, I don't know rampant is the right word, but uh, uh, elaborate uh, devotionalism, worshipping of all kinds, and so you have you have kind of a whole class of Buddhists who relate more to practice in some simple way or some way, and a whole class of Buddhists who relate to not to practice in terms of four foundations of mindfulness and meditation, but relate to it from the point of view of worship and devotion. And so that comes into the text. Um, the um, politics of the time and politics of later are infused in the text. It's there kind of in the, fa- in the fabric of this text. or in the, And it, not necessarily obvious how impregnated politics and war is in this text, uh, if you just kind of read it through once. But it's, you know, it's, it's a, you'll, as we go through it, you'll see that uh, this was a, um, a seemingly a period of great crisis. And the Buddha died in a time of great turmoil. And so what's that about? This man calmly walking across India um, during the time when... Uh, and, and what is what, what, what is this 200-mile 200, 200 march as an 80-year-old man 
you know, how is that connected to the turmoil and crisis and war that was ra- it was about to was was you know going on in India at his time? So that's kind of in that text as well. And then there's all this issue, you know, when someone's going to die, the great religious any teacher, I suppose, is going to die. One of the things that maybe they're concerned about is their legacy, especially someone who kind of created a whole new path, a new understanding, and an order of monks and nuns, disciples. Um, how, do, how does these teachings get passed on? If the founder of the religion is not there to arbitrate and say, this is what the truth is, how, who's going to say afterwards? How are, we, how are people going to know? And so the text uh, has a, uh, a lot of uh, emphasis on how do we know what the Dharma is? What are the, what's really important? What are the teachings? And how do we know that what the teachings after the Buddha has died? And, um, and, and whether the Buddha actually was concerned with these things or whether it's the tradition after him in, interpolated these ideas in, both, were, both make sense because the Buddha was probably concerned about how, what happened after he died. But after he died, people were really concerned. What's the Dharma? How do we figure out what the Dharma is and continue here? Uh, there, were, there were lots and lots of um, uh, disciples of the Buddha who had fanned out across India, had spent time with him, had learned from him and memorized what he had to teach at different times in his career. He said different things to different people. So, um, you know, if, um, you know if, if, you say, if a person said, Buddha said one thing to a person one year and then 20 years later said something very different that helped someone else out, it might have been very different things they said and then what happened if they ran into each other on some, you know, say, oh, the Buddha said this. Wait a minute, he told me something different. You know, he told you to relax. He told me to make effort. You know, he's all about effort. No, he's all about relaxing. And so which one is right? So there's, you know, there's this disparity, probably a difference. You know, people heard different things. And then people don't always remember right, right? I've had people come to me and say, Gil, what you said was so helpful. What did I say? I can't imagine I ever said that. <laughs> so, so did, you know, did people remember accurately? And um, and so, what happens when these people gather together and and um, and the people have different opinions or different views? And how do you sort that out without creating disharmony in the community? So, this whole idea of what is a teaching, how is it preserved, um, how is it recognized, is a recurring and important theme in this text. And then there's a theme of death itself and the Buddha's own passing away. And you'll see that this is a recurring theme in this text, death, uh, the Buddha's death, uh, the impermanence of things. Um, and, um, and there's a whole range of issues that come up about facing death, dealing with death, um, attitudes towards death that come into play um, uh, in this. And it might be interesting to see, you know, what is it, how, how did the Buddha relate to his own death and dying? I think it's, um, um, death, you know, plays a central part in Buddhism, confrontation and meeting of death. Uh, and in some ways, uh, the, Buddhist, the Buddha's career is sandwiched between death. Uh, if you, it depends when you decide his career starts, but... Uh, you know, when he saw the uh, four heavenly messengers, it's, it said. So he saw a corpse. It's the last of the challenging heavenly messengers you saw, you saw. The Buddha was a person who was somehow dismayed or upset or, or so moved, 
so troubled by the contact with the corpse that he left his ordinary life in order to understand something different. And uh, so this person, that's, you know, that's one end of the sandwich. And the other end of the sandwich is a man who's dying. Now it's his death. It's not some other corpse. It's his, going to be his corpse. He's dying. And so what does he learn in the intervening years from the time of his dismay to the time of his own passing away? And so, we, you know, so here we have at both ends of his career you know, the issue of death being highlighted. So what I would like to do today, I, I don't have a handout for you to make it easier. Some of you have copies of the book, many of you don't. So I'm going to uh, hopefully um, keep you engaged. And it's uh, not easy to keep people engaged and interested and involved. But, um, but death is engaging, isn't it? So if we keep that, if we keep that close, close at hand. And it's really close at hand for me because um, I just barely got down here in time this morning because this morning, early in the morning, I went up to sit with a friend who just died yesterday. And um, kind of a Buddha. He was a Zen priest, an old man, 95 years old. And he was laid out with a shaved head and his full Zen robes in his bed. And, um, and so I, said, I was uh, basically more or less alone with him. His daughter was sleeping in the corner of the room. And, um, but uh, she was sleeping, right? So we were basically alone with him and, and just sat and meditated, sat with him, reflected on him. So that's, you know, that's right here for me. I thought it was, oh, this is kind of perfect. The Parinibbana of my friend. And then I come down here to talk to you about the Parinibbana of the Buddha. So death is always close by. So today is in part kind of a contemplation of death and dying. So I have kind of a, of a, of a different areas, of chunks of areas I want to cover today. Um, so the first area is, uh, is uh, the Buddha himself. So this section talk about how the, the, the humanness of the Buddha and pull out those passages in the text that talk about his humanness. And then we'll talk about the Buddha as a divine being um, and how that appears in the text a little bit. And then a little bit about the uh, Buddhist devotionalism that comes up in the text. And then... Uh, probably in the afternoon, then a whole section on this, what is the Dharma? What's the teachings? You know, and the preserva- how, how are the teachings preserved? And that's, a, for me, one of the more important parts of this day is to really, you see some patterns, or you see um, that uh, uh, common themes come back to over and over again around this very important topic. What is the Dharma? What is it, what was the teaching? What's essential? And then at the end of the day, we'll look at uh, the Buddha's own passing away, the issues around that, and um, and um, and my hope is that by doing it thematically this way and kind of jumping around the text, that at some point uh, that's it's it's interesting, valuable in its own right for those of you who are never going to read the text, and for those of you who are going to read it afterwards, which I hope you do. Uh, now, when you read it, you'll have the, all this as a background. And when you read, you'll come across these passages and see the context, and it'll be kind of you'll be pulled into it, and and you'll be living there in ancient India, and understand some of the issues and some of the you know, and and uh, you know, it'll be like Hamlet or something for you. <laughs> you'll say, wow, you know. Yes. Which translation are you looking for? 
Um, yeah, I'm going to mostly uh, refer to Walsh's translation, which is published by Wisdom Publications. There's um, some other translations that are. There's one by uh, Rupert Gethin, and then uh, he has a little anthology of sutras. Gethin's a nice translation. I'm not sure about all his all his choices, but he's a great Pali scholar, so I I shouldn't be doubting his choices. But but I look at some of those things and wonder. And Walshi, I have much more confidence in somehow. Uh, and Tanisha Bhikkhu has sections from it. Uh, doesn't have the whole thing. And um, what else? Uh, what else do you have? Sister Vajira and, and Francis Story. Yeah, I don't really know that one so much. Okay, and there are others around. There's plenty of plenty, lots of them around. There are seven or nine different versions of this text, and the Pali, Pali version just one. And this is such an important issue in the history of Buddhism, right? And so, the, uh, what happened is that after the Buddha died, uh, uh, the, the Buddhist uh, uh, Buddhism kind of split into different denominations. Let's say it that way, and the de- different denominations uh, had different collections of texts. And, or, and as, as things evolved, they adopted, adapted the text in different ways. Or they preserved, some texts they, they preserved. Some of them were remembered in one denomination, but not the other, and whatever. And so, in the Theravadan tradition, has one version. It doesn't have the original one. It just has one of those versions, of those seven or eight or nine versions that are there. So there are versions that are preserved in Sanskrit, in language called Gandhari, in Chinese there are a number of versions. And so uh, scholars have put a lot of effort into looking at all these seven or nine ish, uh, different uh, texts and to try to see if they can find the original and by triangulating. So like say, well, if, if this incident occurs in all nine versions, it must be really early. They all share. But if it only occurs in one of the versions then, and not any of the others, then it must have been added quite late into it. And so there's a lot of work that's, that's been done. I'm not going to bore you with that. But it is interesting. It could be interesting if it was well presented, but I can't do that. And, um, and, um, and you know, one of the holy grails of Buddhist studies is to try to go back, find the historical Buddha. And it seems impossible to do that. We had the filter with which we get back to the Buddha is through these ancient texts. And the texts themselves are already part of this process of, of um, mythologizing or building up or creating stories around the Buddha. And so, you know, and how do we pick and choose and decide which is a later edition, which is the original, and it just it can't, almost can't, it really can't be done very well. So that's why you have to, I think it helps to be fluid when you read this, not be too stuck on the historical and be willing to kind of step back and look at it almost as, as inspired literature that you can really engage in some deep reflective way and like the way you would if you did Hamlet or the Odyssey or something. Other questions for what we're going to do today? Any concerns, other ideas you want to see happen? Different things? Is this okay with you all or... Yes. In the Elvins wondering, I know in Christianity there are schools that have even tried to 
No, I think I think in the early 1800s there was some doubts. This Western scholar was just kind of getting a sense of the existence of the Buddha, but I think that uh, uh, um, I, I haven't seen any real questioning of whether the Buddha existed. Um, that's pretty much accepted as a given fact. Um, but um, but how much uh, you know how much of this these texts actually represent the historical Buddha is a very open question. The closest um, archaeological evidence we have that the Buddha existed is that um, in the 1898 or something, an archaeologist in India opened up an ancient stupa. And they're found like a like a two ton sarcophagus kind of thing, where they lifted up the lid, and inside were all these little jars, and they were seemed like they're still in really good shape, like they hadn't been touched in two thousand years, and they, and and um, and inside some of the jars were uh, relics, you know, like uh, uh, bones and you know relics, you know, uh, human relics of someone who's been cremated. And one of the jars, it's a little bit, people not, not not completely sure how to read what it says. But it either says, here lay the relics of the Buddha, or here relays the relic of relatives of the Buddha. And, uh, but that, uh, they believe that this stupa or these relics uh, date from about the, uh, uh, you know, really early. And um, before, even before Ashoka, and Ashoka, Ashoka, the king Ashoka lived about a hundred years after the Buddha, and so they think that these relics come from even before that. So it's possible these go back to the Buddha, and it's actually his relics. It's possible that it's you know it's his relatives, but uh, that's the closest we have to store you know archaeological evidence that the Buddha existed. Okay. You guys, yes, please. Uh, I understand the Buddha's native language. I understand that the Buddha's native tongue was something like Magadha. Do we know anything about the language or its uh, correlation with uh, either Pali or Sanskrit? Uh, there's, There's been a lot of work on that. And uh, chances are the Buddha would have understood Pali. They're closely related. And, um, but they're not quite the same language. And uh, so they have, uh, scholars have somehow teased apart or found or think they have, know the difference. It's like different dialects. And, uh, and so some people will point out you know, differences. And some, some of the early texts have more Magadhi influence. Pali, Pali is more a dialect of Western India rather than Northeastern India where the Buddha lived. And so... I don't know the, all the scholarship of it, but something like that. So we don't ha- we don't have much in his original language, but it's more like a different dialect. 
Okay. So um, it's now 10.17. Should we take a break at this point or should we uh, spend another 20, 20 minutes here getting into the, the human Buddha? Get started on the human Buddha? Okay, so. So, um, so you know, I kinda, I, when I read this text, I come across some of these very simple images you know, I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I'm kind of, kind of touching. It just seems, you know, makes the person come more alive. It's ordinary things, like, but here, um, he's, um, this is really, uh, in this case, it's his last day. And um, he's walking. He's walking. He's been walking for a long time. And he, he feels that his death is coming. Probably he's going to die that night. And, um, and so um, we have this, uh, this little account. Then the Lord went with a large number of monks to the river Kakutha. He entered the water, bathed and drank, and emerging went to the mango grove, where he said to the venerable Kundaka, his, his attendant, Come, Kundaka, fold a robe in four, for me, I am tired and want to lie down. <clears throat> Very good, Lord, said the Kundika, and did so. Then the Lord adopted the lion posture, lying on his right side, placing one foot on the other, mindfully and with clear awareness, bearing in mind the time of awakening. He took a nap. So he's an old guy, realizing his death is coming. He's not quite ready yet. He takes a bath, drinks, lays down and takes a nap. That's, you know, it's an ordinary thing, a human being. That's what, you know, many human beings would do. And then he woke up, and then he had this, then he talked some more. Uh, an ordinary human being who gets sick. And during the rains, so that, uh, the last rains, three month period of time where monastics stay in one place, so the last rains retreat in the Buddha's life, during that time, probably about three months before he died, um, and during the rains, the Lord was attacked by a severe sickness with sharp pains as if, he, as if he were about to die. But he endured all this mindfully, clearly aware and without complaining. He thought, it is not fitting that I should attain final Nibbana without addressing my followers and taking leave of the order of monks. I must hold this disease in check by energy and apply myself to the force of life. He did so and the disease abated. So, you know, that's, this kind of thing happens often enough in even our modern life. It, um, someone gets really sick, they feel like they're about to die, but something, they need to do something. And so somehow they rally. Like sometimes you see people in hospice that, you know, they really want to stay alive until a child, a relative, you know, a relative can come. And sometimes they seem to, you know, and then when they come, then they pass away. Or sometimes other things, like I heard recently, they wanted to, someone wanted to live until a, a um, grandchild graduated from high school. And that was really important, but wasn't able to do it. Died, any, died before. So, so here the Buddha, for the sake of his monks and nuns, is doing this thing. He's really sick. So this is, this is not an image of a god. You know, gods usually don't get sick. And in fact, a religious um, 
great religious leaders, you usually don't think of them as being sick. They're supposed to be like this, shiny, bright, radiant, sitting on lotus petals. And we tend to want to kind of, kind of aggrandize and make beautiful and blissful. And here we have this person who's, you know, deadly sick. Um, and then we have... And then he had his last meal. And somehow his last meal didn't work so well for him. <laughs> and after having eaten the meal provided by Kunda, the Lord was attacked by a severe sickness with bloody diarrhea and with sharp pains as if he were about to die. So again, you know, here's the Buddha, the great enlightened being. You know, for some Buddhists, you know, the most enlightened being of ever, ever lived, who's overcome suffering, penetrated the Four Noble Truths, experienced, you know, this great spiritual liberation with bloody diarrhea and sharp pains. And it's interesting in the passage just before this, and I see this another side of the humanity of the Buddha, if I interpret it accurately, or the humanity that the later tradition wanted to have. We don't know actually, right? It's literature maybe. Then the Lord, having dressed in the morning, took his robe and bowl and went with his order of monks to Kunda's dwelling, where he sat down on the prepared seat and said, Serve the pig's delight that had been prepared to me, and serve the remaining hard and soft food to the order of monks. Very good, Lord, said Kunda, and did so. Then the Lord said to Kunda, Whatever is left over of the pig's delight, you should bury it in a pit, because, Kunda, I can see none in this world with its devas, maras, and brahmas, in this generation of its ascetics and brahmins, its princes and people, who, if they were to eat it, could thoroughly digest it except for the Tathagata. So he's been served something called pig's delight. No one knows what it is, whether it's actually pork or a mushroom. Uh, you know, it's been a lot. You can't believe how much scholarly literature has gone down where the people are trying to understand what this pig's delight thing is. And um, because pigs like to eat mushrooms, so it's, that's what it means. But is it, or is it a pork dish that was made in a delightful way? Or, you know, what is it? There's one theory is that it was actually medicinal, a kind of medicine. And, uh, and that's why it was specially prepared for him because he was an old man who was sick. But what, what I find interesting is the Buddha said, I can see no one in this world. You know, and he, he refers to the gods too. No one at all who can digest it except for me. That's a great claim. In fact, it's such a great claim. Uh, I think it's kind of, it, it's dangerously close to a boast. But then what happens? After having eaten the meal, the Lord was attacked by severe sickness with bloody diarrhea and sharp pains. Was he able to digest it after all? Somehow he, he had this boast, I can do it. But maybe he didn't. It's kind of like that to me, you know. I, I kind of like to read this as part of his, his fallibility. Rather than looking at the Buddha as infallible, which is often the way the, 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 the divine view people have of the Buddha. You know, the, 
perfectly enlightened, can make no mistakes. Here, here, you know, he's an old man, he's frail, he's sick, he's kind of coming to his end, it's his last meal, and he makes this claim, I can digest this, but he can't. Now, is this just a deal's way of interpreting it? Or? But I see this contrast, stands out to me. Um, there is... Um, Then the Lord, having risen early and dressed, took his robe and bowl and went into Vasali for alms. Very ordinary thing. Monks do this even to this day. They get up early, they put on the robes and their bowl, and they go out into the village, into town, for their food. So this is an easy thing to visualize, those of you who have been to Asia and seen this. And then having returned from the alms round and eaten, he looked back at Vasali. Vasali was a town his time. He looked back at it and said, Ananda, this is the last time I will look upon Visali. Now we will go on to Bandagama. That's, I think, kind of, that's touching to me. Some guy reflecting, this is the last time. This, you know, this is the last time you're gonna see someone. And some of you probably had that experience. The last time you're gonna experience something, see something, do something, see a person. It's a touching thing. And uh, so he's just marking that. It seems also very human kind of thing to do. Um, and then, you know, it's kind of his last tour, his last walk through India. And um, we have this passage. Yeah. Yes. Could you uh, cite the stanza? Read some of the oh, okay. That last one, uh, last time Vesali was... Uh, Four one, and then um, and then three two. Um, then the Lord came to the Kapala shrine. The word shrine is Chetya, and uh, many people think that scholars think that what this refers to uh, is um, a tree shrine. Trees were considered very special in ancient India, and there were tree spirits and yakshas and and worshiping of trees and the spirits that lived in trees and somehow they. So they think this shrine is not like a building or something, but it's a, a tree that uh, was kind of special or a grove. So he came to the Kapala shrine and sat down on the prepared seat. Ananda saluted the Lord and sat down to one side. And the Lord said, Ananda, Visali is delightful. The Udena shrine is delightful. The Guttamaka shrine is delightful. Uh, the Satambaka shrine is delightful. The Bahuputta shrine is delightful and the Kapala shrine is delightful. You know, here's this guy delighting, expressing the beauty that he's known. And, um, and I, to me, it's kind of touching and he was kind of here at the end of his life kind of remembering the things he's seen that's beautiful, appreciating the beauty of, around him. And uh, part of the reason I value this kind of little passage is it goes a little bit against the... Uh, uh, often the impression you get from Theravada Buddhism where you're not supposed to enjoy life. You're not supposed to see the beauty. You're supposed to see the ugly. You're supposed to see the problem. You're supposed to, you know, basically, you know, sometimes, not, not all of Buddhism, but sometimes in Theravada Buddhism, you get a little bit of a world-negating kind of feeling and attitude. And, um, and you don't get, often get, you know, this emphasis on what's delightful. And in fact, in, in some of these other versions of this text, 
uh, that sense of the beauty of life uh, is, uh, is mentioned much more explicitly in this one. And, uh, you know, whether the Theravadins just couldn't quite keep those passages in or what happened, I don't know. Um, There's another ordinary little kind of depiction, 120. The Lord has arrived, uh, um, so that he came to a town of Patalagami, Gama, and the people have heard that he's arrived. And so the lay followers came to the Lord, saluted him, sat down to one side and said, may the Lord consent to stay at our rest house. And the Lord agreed. Understanding his consent, they rose from their seats, saluted the Lord and passing him on, passing him by to the by the, to the right went to the rest house and strewed the floor prepared seats and provided water pot and filled the oil lamp then they went to the lord saluted him stood to one side and said all is ready at the rest house then the lord dressed took his robe and bowl and went with his monks to the rest house where he washed his feet went in sat down facing east with his back against the central pillar and the monks, having washed their feet, went in, sat down with their backs to the west wall, facing east, with the Lord sitting in front of them. And the lay followers of Patalagama, having washed their feet, went in and sat down with their backs to the east wall, facing west, and with the Lord before them. So, you know, I don't know if this happened, but this is a pretty ordinary scene, you know. It still happens, you know. You're invited to someone's home for the, to rest, to stay, and prepared for them in simple ways and um, seats made and ready and water pots. And back in India, still to this day, people wash their feet before they go into homes. Remember, I was a monk in Burma, being invited to a lay person's home for a meal. And, um, you know, by the time we got there, our f- we were in sandals and our feet were all dusty and we take our sandals off at the door of the house and they have a basin of water for us to wash our feet before we come into the house. So, you know, this is kind of ordinary life that the Buddha lived and you get this little sense of this ordinariness of it all. Uh, this is the last one thing about the ordinary thing I want to, one second, oh, a few more things, okay? So, if, um, I don't know if this is ordinary, but um, I, I think it's a nice little hint of something. Uh, so, the Buddha is, um, been resting, and uh, Ananda's give him some water and he's resting by the edge of the river. And this um, student of another teacher comes along and uh, sees, sees the Lord sitting under a tree. He goes over to the Buddha, salutes him, sits down to one side. And then he says, it is wonderful, Lord. It is marvelous how calm these wanderers are. So the Buddha's sitting there with his other monks. And the comment that the passing the person passing by says how wonderful to see how calm you all are or how peaceful you all are and that's somehow that's touching to me that that's what stands out and, and um, I don't know if the, this traveler knew the Buddha was dying or getting close to his death but the fact that that, that uh, somehow there's a calm presence is uh, is noteworthy so perhaps there's something about it's another part of the ordinariness of life you, know, you can imagine someone being calm and feeling they're calm and here we have this ancient little record referring back 
to the Buddha. And uh, I imagine he was calm at times. It makes sense, yes? Uh, could you say why they address him as Lord? And if there's another uh, translation from the Pali that might be more clarifying for you? Yes, the, the word is um, Bhagavan. And that's a, a word that is used uh, still to this day in India f- to refer to uh, teachers and sometimes gurus. I don't know who else. Sometimes I, it's, it's, it's used quite a bit. You, someone, people know? It's, um, but anyway, it's a common word for gurus, teachers. And it means something like the... Uh, it, apparently it comes from the root, root of the word meaning to shine or to be illustrious or radiant. And um, so the radiant one, the illustrious one, the... Or the ble- sometimes they say it comes from the root meaning to, to the blessed one. So sometimes you see the translation uh, blessed one rather than the Lord. So this translation is Lord. Uh, Bikabodhi has the blessed one. And, um, and, uh, and Lord is a little bit challenging for people who come out of this Christian background. So another ordinary thing, perhaps... In two four, um, it seems that what happens here: the Buddha comes to a village where there's been a plague, and um, and there's a li- names of twelve people that the Buddha knows as disciples. And when he comes to that town, he finds out that those twelve have all died. And uh, the idea of a plague, you know, that twelve people die in one village. That's a lot. That's a lot of people. So there's other places where they suggest maybe there was, it came across it was a plague. And so here he is, you know, it's not necessarily a, always pastoral India, but this is a, you know, it's a, it's a text, this is about death, and here we have this meeting of a common occurrence, people getting sick, <coughs> plague coming through unexpectedly, not just simply an old man who dies in old age, but here we have reference to... Um, you know, and this must have been, Buddha must have encountered this often, often. Um, some of the things which I find touching, uh, touching about this text, you have to know a lot about the background to see how it's touching. Early in this text, there's a little account of uh, Sariputta. Sariputta was considered the Buddha's right-hand lieutenant, right-hand man, his, his primary disciple. And he makes a short appearance in this text, in the beginning, where um, they have a little exchange where the uh, Shariputta says, um, you know, there's, no, there's no, never been anybody as great as you. And the Buddha pushes back and says, how would you know? <laughs> you know, that's basically presumptuous of you to say that. I mean, you haven't been around. You haven't known all the other Buddhas and everything. And then Shariputta says something that Buddha then approves. And that's it. That's the last, okay? So that's, you can read it. But... but um, What's held in the tradition and what appears elsewhere in the text and the other suttas is that the Sariputta died before the Buddha. So we're talking here in the last months of the Buddha's life. So, uh, so, and I think the assumption and understanding is the Buddha knew that Sariputta died. And uh, Sariputta took his leave from the Buddha and went back to his hometown and died there. And so here, you know, in the backdrop, of this great, um, in this death of this great religious leader, is his uh, the death of his own close disciple just before he died. You know, how did he feel about that? What that was like? What was going on? Uh, we don't know, but that seems to be in the mix of what was happening here. 
So, at the opening of this text, the book, the, the text opens with conflict and ends with conflict. Here's a man who dedicated to overcoming conflict, spent his life dedicated to peace, to liberation, from freedom from suffering, freedom from conflict, um, uh, stepping out of the popular currents of uh, war and conflict that people often live in. And this text begins and ends with it. It begins um, with the king of Rajagaha, king of Kosala, uh, who's the, where the Buddha happens to be residing at that time, uh, deciding that he was going to attack the neighboring country, the Vajians. He says, I will strike the Vajians who are strong and powerful. I will cut them off and destroy them. I will bring them to ruin and destruction. That's in the first paragraph of the last the days of the Buddha's life. This is how it begins. Good again. Mow them down. And then he goes, then he sends a minister to the Buddha and says, go tell the Buddha that I'm planning to do this. He's not asking for advice. He's just saying, just tell the Buddha and then tell me how he reacts, how he responds. That's, uh, that's how it begins. Ajatusatru is a... Um, his story, which is kind of nice to know in the background, is that he um, usurped the throne from his father by killing his father. So patricide is considered a terrible thing. And so here, this is the, this is the kind of person he is. He killed his father so he can become king. And now he wants to declare war on the neighboring country. The discourse ends with the Buddha having died and his body cremated. And, um, and then this Ajatasatru, who knew the Buddha, sends a message that he would like to have the remains, the relics. And then someone else says, no, I would like to have the relics. And someone else says, no, I'd like to have the relics. And there are eight people who make claim to the relics of the Buddha. And, it's, um, and then the last one says, On hearing all this, the malas of Kusanara address the crowd saying, The Lord passed away in our parish. We will not give away any share of the Lord's remains. So that's a strong statement. You know, like taking a stand. So there's conflict here. There's conflict over his remains. The, the Theravadan tradition calls it the war, of the, the war of the relics. And I think there's other accounts, maybe later accounts, about this war, the conflict with it. It was resolved peacefully when someone stepped forward and said, well, let's just divide it up. <laughs> and so they divided it up and, and, uh, and they got divided into eight portions. And then the ninth person received the bowl that the ashes were held in and the tenth person received some of the ashes left in the, on the pyre. Um, and um, and um, so conflict, right? Beginning and ends. It's kind of sad a little bit that here's this guy devoted to peace that somehow even after he died that doesn't, the peace doesn't stay very long. Within days, you know, there's 
people are arguing over his remains. It seems like you shouldn't argue over the Buddha. It's a little bit more poignant, I think. It, it doesn't seem like the Buddha had any real wishes for um, what happened after he died. Nothing like Ajahn Buddhadasa, one of the great Thai teachers in Thailand in the last century. Uh, his instructions for when he died was he lived in the woods much of the time. He liked being outdoors in the forest a lot. And his instructions was when he died, the monks were supposed to prop his body up against a tree and leave him there. So the monks could uh, do contemplation of death and decay and impermanence. And, um, but he was so famous in Thailand um, that uh, he wasn't allowed his wish. But here, uh, so we don't know if the Buddha had any wishes, but um, in the text, Ananda asks the Buddha, um, but Lord, what are we to do with the Tathagata's remains? So it's a reasonable question. I mean, many of you, some of you might have asked a relative or a parent or grandparent, you know, when you die, what are your wishes? Because that's often, it's very helpful to people to know what your wishes are rather than have to make it up after you die. Some people want to know how best to take you. So he asks, what should we do with your remains? And the Buddha says, um, I won't go all of it now, but he says, they should be dealt with as the remains of a great monarch. And they should be cremated. And then he says, Ananda, um, a stupa should be erected at the crossroads for the Thagata. So a stupa should be built, a big pile of thing. And all those remains should be, that's in the crossroads, some place where a lot of people travel and go by. And so that's where that the remains should go. And the Buddha says, whoever lays wreaths and puts sweet perfumes and colors there with a devout heart will reap benefit and happiness for a long time. So this is a little kind of plug for devotionalism, that if you go you know, to worship there at the stupa, that's beneficial. But uh, that, that what the Buddha's instructions are, take all the remains, put them in one stupa, in a crossroad. Well, you know, um, that's not what happened. They had a war over his relics and they got divided up. And, and ten stupas were built from, as a result of that. So here, ordinary human life. The Buddha was in the midst of it. And there was conflict. There was war. The war is even more dramatic. And this gets into a little bit more speculation. But I think it's worth speculating about. It means taking to, uh, pulling together the evidence from different places. Because the, the early tradition was not particularly interested in history. And what they, were in, what they thought was important was not what an historian thinks is important. So in the middle-length discourses, uh, Discourse 89, there is a discourse called Monuments to the Dharma. And the reason why it's preserved is maybe is because at the end of it, the Buddha says, uh, um, says, remember these statements. And so it's, now it's preserved because the Buddha said you should. But the story of why these statements were made wasn't particularly important to people, so they kind of didn't fill in the picture completely. But uh, what it, what it has, occurs is that um, the Buddha is 80 years old. It says that in the text. So it's close to the time of his dying. He died when he was 80 or 81. And he's back in his home country, in the Shakyan 
uh, hill tribes of the Himalayas. And it's, you know, it's kind of, that's also pretty ordinary for people to want to go home when they're going to die, back to some place where they grew up or something. So anyway, that's where the Buddha happens to be. And the neighboring king, his name is Pasanadi, comes to see the Buddha. And Pasanadi says to the Buddha something like, we've known each other for a long time. We're the same age. We come from the same clan. We've been friends. And I've come here to pay my respects to you. And he, gives, he says all kinds of praise to the Buddha, how wonderful the Buddha is, that the Buddha later called, that's the monument to, that's the, monument to the Dharma, uh, or whatever he said it was. And, um, but it, it, what's t- uh, but in, the, in the lead up, so what happens in this story, it describes how the king approaches the Buddha. The king comes with his minister. Now, I can imagine if you leave your hometown, home country as a king, and you go to a different country to see a religious person, you probably come with some protection. You probably come at least with a sword or two. You know, because, so he came with his minister, maybe with other people too. But you don't bring your weapons when you go see the Pope, you know, or see a great religious person. You kind of, you know, some person dedicated to life. So he said, tell the minister, you stay here, and here are my weapons, here are my insignia of office. The, insig- the things that, the, 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 the objects that kind of tell him, say, tell the world he's a king. So he leaves everything behind with the minister. And then he goes into the woods and has this conversation with his old friend, the Buddha. If you've known for, they've known each other for, you know, 60 years or who knows how long. And then they have this exchange, it's nice, and Pasanari leaves. That's the end of that sutta. What is said elsewhere, in which probably the people at the time knew the story, is that that minister saw his chance to usurp the throne. And so he left with the weapons and the insignia of power and went back to the country to... Pasanadi's son and said to his son, either you become the king or I'm going to do it. And the son took over. The son had a really big grudge against the Buddha's home country. And he had vowed earlier that when he had the chance, he would attack and massacre the people in the Buddha's home home. And we don't have any evidence in the Pali canon that such a thing happened. Uh, but in other lit- uh, early literature, other sutras from other traditions, these other denominations, there are accounts of, while Buddha was still alive, that um, this new son, the son, the new king, actually did that, went and attacked the Buddha's homeland and did a great massacre. The Pali tradition uh, claims later, later literature claims that the massacre happened after the Buddha died. But soon after, not long afterwards. So here we have this you know, war and tension going on. Now it gets more interesting. So, so uh, the story goes that King Pasanadi came out of the woods and his minister was gone. He, uh, a serving woman was left there and she explained what happened so he knew that he'd been usurped. And so what does he do? He can't go back. He's defenseless. So he heads south to see 
King Ajatasatru. They haven't, haven't always seen eye to eye, but you know, they're kind of you know, colleagues in the business. So he goes to the neighboring king to see if he can get support or help or a place of refuge. Now remember, this is another 80-year-old man. Sometimes I think the Buddha probably was in good shape. Probably he walked a lot. But a king? Probably, you know, 80-year-old king. Chances are 80-year-old kings are not in good shape. That's my bias. So he walks these 200 miles. And the Google, if you do Google map, that's what I did. If you do the Google map thing, from one place to the next, on the roads of modern India, it's 200 miles. Back then, probably the roads weren't that straight, and there were rivers to cross, and, you know, so... But according to Google, he walked 200 miles. So, you know, and, um, and he came to the... At nightfall, he came to the edge of Rajagriha, where this king Ajasatru lived. And because it was nightfall, the gates of the city were closed, and he wasn't allowed in. So he found a rest house outside, and he um, died there that night, probably exhausted, weary, whatever. So here, the Buddha's good friend, probably one of his best friends outside the monastic order, was usurped and headed south. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta begins with the Buddha in Rajagriha, begins with the Buddha in this town, Vajrasattva's capital. The previous discourse, the Majjhima, has the Buddha as an eight-year-old man back in his home country, and now he's here. Why did he, as an 80-year-old man, did he go all the way down to Rajagriha? And then was there for a little while and then seemingly turned around and headed back north again. What is it that in the last year of his life he decided to head down, what was important enough to walk this long walk south and this long walk north? So now maybe I'll show you the map. Diana helped put together a map for, for this so you can see the walk a little bit, get a sense. As they get, as they warm up, it's warming up and we're cooling down. It's up now. Okay, so, okay, so here. So um, here's Rajagraha. It's in modern town of Rajgir in India, and this is where Vulture Peak is. Vulture Peak was a famous place. Many of the suttas take place there. And, um, and so the Buddha uh, heads north and he goes up to Nalanda. It's meant to, there's, uh, this this uh, Parinibbana Sutta mentions a lot of villages and uh, many of them we don't have a clue what they are now but some of them uh, are still exist at these towns. So it uh, mentions Nalanda and Nalanda became a very, the, the most famous Buddhist university in, in ancient India. A huge, huge place. And so it's mentioned. 
and then um, uh, he goes up to uh, Pataligama, and um, see here the king Ajatasattva sends a minister to ask about you know I want to say says you know I want to declare war and destroy the neighbors up here. This is the Vajians up here. Here's the Magadas. And, um, and then the Buddha heads up north. And then in the sutra, when he gets to Patalegami, that's the modern town of Patna, city of Patna in India. And there he comes across uh, the same minister, but now the minister's up here and he's building fortifications. He's built a big fort, but this is the border to the town of the Vajians. So he's building a big fort and, um, because war is in the air. That's what's going on. And then the Buddha crosses the river. It's a big river to cross. Somehow he had to cross it. And then uh, he kept walking north, north, crossed the river again, and, uh, and eventually came to Kusinara. And Kusinara is where he died. And according to the text itself, Kusinara at that time was just a little uh, remote boondock kind of village or town. And, um, and you see at the very top, Lumbini, and Kapalevastu, that's in uh, Sakya, it says up there. So Lumbini is where the Buddha was supposedly born, and Kapalevastu was kind of like the capital of that uh, Sakyan country. Uh, and um, so he's heading north. He's clearly, he's going back home. And, um, and only recently, because when he was 80, he was already home. So somehow he, came, he, he traveled from home, home country, all the way down to here, and then started to head back again, all within one year. And part of that year, he spent three months in the rains retreat here. So he left this town, spent three months here, and then, um, and then here, at some point during his rains retreats, he said he made the claim that he was going to die within three months. And so between here and there, took about three months to walk. The Pali uh, commentaries claim the last day of the Buddha's life, just when he came close to Kusinara, where he lay down, uh, he was walking and he had to rest 25 times. You know, he's sick, he has bloody diarrhea. And he's, you know, and what keeps a person so sick and so tired and barely can go? Keep going, keep going. And he, it looks like he's really hard, really trying hard to go home, but he doesn't make it. And that also seems like a very human thing. You have this big wish, you're trying to do something, and life, you don't get what you want in life. That's what he said, right? And um, so his life, his end, end of his life kind of represents almost as you don't get what you want, and, and you get this war happening. And so, in fact, what happened to Ajatasattva after the Buddha died, he, he became the, he, he had war in many of the neighboring countries and created a big empire for himself, biggest empire of the time in his, you know, in his conquering of places. Um, so what the, what the theory is, one theory, is that King Pasanadi, when he was usurped, when he headed down here to see, get help or get refuge, the Buddha followed him to support his help, support his, his friend. Or the Buddha followed it in order to try to enlist help in Ajatasattru to help defend his own country because there was going to be war happening up there too. This new, this new king was going to attack. And so we don't know what happened down here. 
But whatever was going, it had to be something significant. You don't just go for a last little trip like that. If you're 80 years old, little, you know, be a tourist in India. And then he turned around and he went back, back up. And maybe try to help his country or maybe just to die at home or who knows why. So that's the... Um, So that's kind of the little bit. That's the, um, my effort to try to give you the human side of uh, the Buddha as it comes through in this text. A little bit uh, to give you a sense that you know, you might, you, many, many people read into the Buddha a peaceful man living at peace, living in the woods, living in groves of trees and uh, just kind of oblivious to the struggles around him. But here's a man who's living with war and violence and tension and conflict all around him. And he must be, and, and, and he knew the main characters. He knew, he was connected. He was friends or he was acquainted with all the kings of the time. And, um, you know, he was, had his personal connection to it all. And somehow, uh, coming to the end of his life, um, this, um, you know, this is all there in the backdrop of this man who's going to die. That. Okay, so um, hopefully that's an adequate introduction for the day. And uh, let's take a break. And then uh, let's take a break for 20 minutes. Let's start again at 11.20.